We started that in January with Genesis, and we are trying to preach uh, one passage from every book of the Old Testament. There are 39 books of the Old Testament, taking one passage from each book and pointing us to Christ in our series, Christ in all of Scripture. I hope it's been enjoyable for you. It has been a challenge to do every week, but at the end of this term, at the end of this Uh, series. We will begin a new series, uh, a Christmas series called The Gift. But in the beginning of next year, we will go back to preaching um, through the books of the Bible, and that will be a lot easier for me. It may be easier for you as well, not skipping around from book to book. But our goal in this series has always been to be able to read our Bibles with intentionality and purpose, understanding what God is doing through the whole narrative of the scriptures. And I hope as we get to Ezra and Nehemiah this morning that you understand those things. Our, <clears throat> our good friend Christian, who is usually with us on these services of worship together, services not here this morning, so we're glad you're here, Northwest and Espanol, bendiciones. Uh, if you will, but uh, our good friend Christian is not here today, so um, we didn't represent very well this morning. But in Ezra and Nehemiah, we get the end of the Old Testament narrative. And next week, we'll talk about First and Second Chronicles, as that is a recap of all the history of Israel. But Ezra and Nehemiah is the end of the narrative section of the story before the coming of Christ. Ezra and Nehemiah are actually found upon one scroll and are to be read as one book. They were separated because of their length and and, and different stories here. But this is one scroll and one book and we'll, we'll take it as one as well. As it recounts God's faithfulness to rebuild and restore a remnant of Israel. Everybody loves a happy ending, right? Maybe you uh, watched a movie this weekend. You love happy endings. And yet, when we read both the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, we are left saying, wait, what? That's it? That's the end of the story. I thought that there would be a happy ending to the Old Testament. Of course, we're, we're meant to read these thinking, and I'm hoping for more. We, we've been telling this story all the way through. God has been faithful every step of the way and God's people continually mess up turning away from the one true God doing what was right in their own eyes worshiping idols neglecting God's word and in most cases thinking that judgment would never come upon them because they are God's people And then, of course, it does, right? We've seen that over and over again through the prophets, through Babylon, the destruction of everything. Even last week in in Daniel, as they live in exile, the temple is gone. God's holy city, Jerusalem, is gone. The walls are gone, and they are now in exile. But the book of Ezra begins with hope of a return from exile. It says at the beginning of Ezra chapter 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. God uses this pagan king going back to the time of Daniel to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And guess what? The king of Persia funds the rebuilding of God's temple in Jerusalem. So in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's actually three waves of return 
from exile, which correspond to the three waves of people leaving Jerusalem in exile. The first wave is actually led by a man named Zerubbabel, whose name means planted in Babylon. He is of the line of David, and he is sent by Cyrus to rebuild the temple. The second wave happens 80 years later under King Artaxerxes, when Ezra comes to teach the word of God to the people and get the temple ready to receive the sacrifices. And the third wave comes in the days of Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer, about 14 years later under Artaxerxes again, where Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. Artaxerxes is probably uh, the son of Azahiris, we, we heard about him in the days of Esther, Esther's king. So the son of Esther's king is actually sending God's people back to rebuild God's city. So you think, man, this is going to be a storybook ending, right? God raises up Daniel in the days of Cyrus. He raises up Esther in the days of Xerxes and Artaxerxes. He uses Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah to rebuild what's torn down. They live happily ever after. But only you read the story and you, you read the book of Nehemiah. And at the end of the book, Nehemiah is so upset with God's people that he's pulling people's beards out. Not, not that I'm going to be doing that anytime soon, but... The Levites are neglecting the temple duties that was built by Zerubbabel. The people are rejecting the Torah that was taught by Ezra, marrying foreign women who do not worship God. And the people are desecrating the Sabbath day by making marketplaces on the walls built by Nehemiah. So the people, after God has shown them grace after grace and being restored... They have nullified the grace of God by continuing to live in sin, going back to the wilderness instead of entering God's rest. So in our passage this morning in the middle of the book of Ezra, Ezra returns to Jerusalem to find the remnant of God's people turning to pagan wives. And what really that means is they've entered it back into idolatry. They've joined themselves with the idols of the world, marrying women who do not know or serve the one true God in heaven. And Ezra sees this. He falls to his knees and he offers a prayer on behalf of himself and God's people who are guilty of returning to the sins of the past, which caused them complete destruction of Jerusalem. God's people need a savior. And God's people need a new heart. They need God to write the law upon their heart and give them a desire to fulfill the word of God to live in obedience to God himself. This is seeking the heart of God. Let's turn to Ezra chapter 9. If you'll stand with me, we'll read through this narrative of Ezra coming to find the remnant that is left in Jerusalem has gone and strayed away from God again. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For have they taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves? And for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been 
foremost. As soon as I heard this, Ezra speaking in first person here, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment, my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment, my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have given into the hand of kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now... For a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servant, the prophet, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it, it is a land impure with impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanliness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? And intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? So that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, We are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. You can be seated. Father, we ask as we hear this prayer of this godly man, Ezra, we hear of the remnant of Israel that has failed again. We are reminded of your continuous grace in our life. And Father, we ask that we would not trample upon your grace in our own life. That we would see the work of God in your church, in our life, in our hearts, And respond with submission and obedience to your word. Father, give us the boldness and courage to live in this world for your kingdom and your glory. And Father, if we fail, help us to have a heart of repentance as Ezra has. Father, we have failed mightily. And yet you give us so much grace. 
Your steadfast love is what we cling to. We thank you for this body. We thank you for this Thanksgiving as we are so thankful for so many things. We ask that you would walk with us, that you would give us a heart for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, over the uh, Thanksgiving break, I was talking to my son and he really wanted to stay up late. Remember, he didn't have school, so he really wanted to stay up late almost every night. And, and, and if you have young children, you know that bedtime is often a difficult time because they do not want to go to bed. And, and he will just do anything in his power to prolong the time it takes to go to sleep. And maybe you can relate, parents, um, to this, but he has a few tricks up his sleeve to make sure that bedtime is prolonged. He has what I would like to call the slow play, where he puts his PJs on so slow that you think that he was in line at Best Buy on Good Black Friday, all right? So... Then he may have the eternal brush where he seems to take forever brushing his teeth. I think to myself, I could have a whole workout done by the time that you're brushing your teeth, son. But his favorite and his all-time go-to is the chatty Kathy, where he just wants to talk to you endlessly asking question after question like we were on the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So I gave him the tired dad answer the other night. Dad has to go to work on his sermon, son. By which the conversation went, Oh, dad, I can help you out with that. What are you preaching on this week? I told him, Ezra. And he said, oh, I know Esther. I've seen the Veggie Tales before. I know that story really well. I said, no, no, it's not Esther, son. It's, it's Ezra and Nehemiah. To which he replied, oh, I know a lot about spiders, Dad. I said, what do you know about spiders, son? Well, I know a lot about black widows. They have eight legs. I I think that they have eight legs is, is what he said. Is that right? And a red dot on their back. But I do know this. Even if they seem dead, they can bite you again. So don't touch them because they might just have enough juice left in them to hurt you. I told him that actually works well for what we're talking about today. The words of wisdom from the eight-year-old son. You see, Israel has not taken the advice. They have decided to join themselves to a people who would not recognize God as Lord. And they have decided to worship other gods. Let's call them spiders, if you will. You would have thought after years of seeing the pattern of the blessings of God for those who obey his word and the curses for those who reject God's word that's lined out in Deuteronomy 28 in a beautiful section of scripture. If you haven't read it, you should read it. You think that they would have learned The hearing of God's word and the responding to God's word in obedience brings joy. But going against God's word, against the Lord, not heeding his word, brings pain and judgment. And ultimately, what they have seen in their life, destruction. Deuteronomy 28, 62, just to give you a piece of says this, whereas you are as numerous as the stars of heaven, God has blessed Israel at this point. You shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
Moses is telling the people, if you don't obey God's word, you will be a remnant. And that is what they are. And they're continuing to walk down that path of disobedience. And now Ezra comes to Jerusalem and he finds a remnant, the remnant of God's people unfaithful. And at the end of Ezra's prayer, he says something and we don't want to miss what he says. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. No one can stand before our God. You know, this is the question in Revelation that is raised in Revelation chapter 6. Who can stand before the Lord God Almighty? Who can stand before his judgment? Who can stand before his wrath? That's the question. And that's the question in Ezra's prayer. Who can stand before the God of the universe, the holy and righteous God who has created us in his image to reflect his glory? Who can stand? Revelation 6 15 says it like this, Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You understand this picture in Revelation is this picture of the judgment of God. People are hiding from the wrath of God poured out upon humanity for their sin. And they're hiding. And they're saying, who can stand before God? And Ezra, he's saying the same thing. Who can stand before our God? And Revelation answers the question. The next chapter in Revelation chapter 7 answers the question. In verse 9, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who is standing? It's, it's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what, what are they standing with? They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, they're, they're worshiping the Lord in front, of the, in front of the Lord himself standing. And then one of the elders in verse 13 addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. John doesn't know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who can stand before God Almighty? It's those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So Ezra is asking a question that is answered in Christ. Who can stand? We are guilty. We are a guilty people before the Lord Almighty. We cannot stand. We are hiding in caves because of his wrath and judgment that is about to be poured out upon us. Who can stand? Only those who are clothed in white because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. You see, it's, it's, it's certainly not a new temple that's going to change the people's heart. They've built, rebuilt the temple. It's not studying the Torah more. They've, they've been taught the Torah. 
It's not being in, reinvigorated as a, as a nation through physical renewal of walls being built. Nehemiah did that. It didn't change their hearts. It's only through the Lamb of God who was slain and the faith of God's people brings them in which God implants in his people a new heart and the spirit of the living God. That's what transforms the life of people. The book of, of, of Ezra and Nehemiah is a book about telling us that we tried it all and it hasn't worked. We tried to build buildings. We tried to teach them the word of God, except the word of God was not written on their heart. They needed a new heart. And the coming king who will take away the sins and give people a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will be the one that we look to to transform God's people. So he is the one we look to today. Let's look at verse 2 of Ezra chapter 9. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So not not only the people mixing their life with idolatrous people, but they're joining in union, the sacred union of marriage with them, becoming like them, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, all these peoples in which God has driven from the land because of their abominations and their wickedness, and they are joining themselves to them. This is point number one. God's people need the word of God written upon their hearts. God's people need the word of God written upon their hearts. So it's been 80 years since they've returned to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. But 80 years ago, most, mostly would have been men who went to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. It would have been hard work to rebuild the temple. It would have been uh, dangerous work to go to Jerusalem, a place that's been non-inhabited for many, many years. There's no government. So where are they going to get wives? Instead of going back to Babylon or Persia to get godly women who are in exile, they grab some of the locals thinking it's not a big deal. Even it says some of the leaders... The officials, the chief men have been foremost. It's not a big deal, right? Sexual immorality, marrying an unbeliever. God says it's a big deal. It's the sin of Solomon creeping back into the people of the land. Marrying those who do not believe or obey the one true God. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He says it this way. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. God says it's a big deal. God says it's a big deal to create a marital union with an unbeliever. Young people, this is probably one of the most important, it is the most important decision on this earth that you will make. Well, pastor, I, I think he's a really nice guy. 
He shops at Crest, okay? He saves money. He even goes to church with me sometimes. Here's, here's one I hear all the time. He or she, they will go to church with me. If they're not sold out for the Lord, we're not going near. And I understand that some in this room are waiting or have waited a long time to find their spouse. Just like Israel is many miles away from the right woman yet, we trust in a sovereign God. And he is the first in our life. There's always a test in the kingdom of God. Do you trust in God? Ruth is is a great story to read over and over about how God builds her. God creates your love story. But we trust in the sovereignty of God. Do you trust in the sovereignty of God in your love story? To create or build your story? And sometimes he says, my grace is sufficient for you. I have lots more to say on this issue. We'll do a pastor's roundtable on this topic tomorrow. Look at that on Facebook. But the people of God keep falling back into the sins of their fathers. You see this over and over and over and over again, and you see it here again. What do they need? Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There's a lot in there. We've preached on that before back in Jeremiah. But he will write the law on their heart. The word of God will not have to be drilled into them. They will know the Lord. They will have a relationship with their God. They will be led by the spirit of the living God. Their heart will be transformed to the desires of God himself. To desire the way of God. They will want God's way. They will desire to live in obedience to the word of God. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So how does God do this? Through the grace of the Father sending the Son who in turn paid for the sins of the world and gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible gift, you know, that you can surrender your life to be led by God. That is the gift that God now cleanses you out as he cleansed the temple and now he inserts the spirit of the living God into your life. You can actually allow the God of the universe to change your heart, to change your desires to the ways of God. Rather than just continually forcing your body to behave, 
you can actually desire God's way. It's called sanctification. As God transforms your life, he does the work. It's his work, yet you allow him the ability to do it by his spirit. You are submitting yourself to the spirit of the living God to transform your life. And he does it. Transforms your heart to desire the ways of God. And God is faithful even in our unfaithfulness. Listen to what Ezra prays in anguish as he lays upon the earth with his hands outstretched, saying in verse 6, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities, he includes himself in the community in which he finds himself have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt and for our iniquities, we, we our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land to sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. So he's recapping what has gone on. But now for a brief moment, favor. Some of your translations, grace. The blessing of God has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up a house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. This is our second point this morning. It's this, God has been faithful to an unfaithful people. God is faithful to an unfaithful people, amen? Isn't this our story though? Every person in this room has felt the weight of their sin at one point in time or another. You may be feeling the weight of your sin right now. You may realize that your sin are an offense to an almighty, holy God who calls for his creation to reflect his image, meaning you reflect the character and nature of God himself. And when we do not do that, it's called sin. Missing the mark of who God is. Sin. And when we stand in the presence of God or when we're confronted with the almighty, holy presence and nature of God himself, the character of God himself, in our sin, we feel the weight of that. It's like going to a Bedlam football game as a in in the visitors colors so it's like going to norman in orange in the sea of crimson you feel the weight of that my mom used to say those kids just want to make your shirt dirty why so that they don't look as dirty It's like having a stained t-shirt in a room of white t-shirts. 
You feel the weight of sin. And that's when Ezra feels. It's the ungroomed man in the presence of the president and the first lady. It's cousin Eddie at the wedding on top of Devon Tower. It's showing up to Christmas dinner in your boxers before the holy and righteous God, we feel ashamed and naked, wanting to hide from his glory. It's what Adam and Eve felt in the garden. And we feel it when we're confronted with the truth. So Ezra, he understands this. He understands the great God of heaven. He understands the weight of the sin of God's people and the judgment and wrath that is going to come because of their sin. But he also understands this. In the unfaithfulness of God's people, God has been faithful. He has shown his steadfast love. He pulls us from the dumpster in which we're diving in sin and cleans us up, gives us a fresh robe and says, I paid for it in the blood of Christ. And then he presents us as holy and righteous. And we stand before the God of heaven, not on the basis of what we have done, but the basis of what Christ has done on the cross. In Ezra's case, they've seen the grace of God. They've seen it in their return from exile, the rebuilding of the temple. And how do they respond to that grace? They stomp on it. They deny God's grace by continuing to live in sin. It's a wave of disaster going from sin to judgment to, to half-repentance to restoration, to back into sin, judgment, back into some sort of repentance and then restoration. It's not meant to be this way for the people of God. Again, Christ has paid for your sin. You've been given the Holy Spirit to change the desires of our heart. We submit to God's design and his word, and we allow God to transform our desires to align with God's desires. Shall we continue to live in sin? By no means. Why? Because our sin was paid for upon the cross. You see how, how God does this through the power of the Holy Spirit? It's like, it's, like, it's like us drinking apple cider vinegar. If you've ever drank in that stuff, it's, it's, it's bad tasting, okay? It's like drinking that every day and saying, well, it doesn't taste that bad. It's, it's okay. But then the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us And we wake up one day and we drink that stuff and we realize how awful and disgusting it actually is. That's what God does in the sanctification process. We get to a point where we see what sin actually is and we go, I don't want that. That is disgusting. It is repulsive. I want to live in the obedience to the word of God and what God says is good and pleasing and holy and righteous. Think about these things. Why? Because it's true and good. God gives us a distaste for sin. He grows our love for the things of God. And if this is not happening in your life, we're probably quenching the Holy Spirit. We're probably blowing it out in our life, because this is what God does with believers. So you have to go back to, do we understand who this God is? Do we understand the grace of God? Are we submitting to our life to this God? Are we allowing him to transform our heart? Are we quenching it? 
I'm saying, oh, it's not that bad. Verse 10. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you're entering to take possession of it, it is a land impure with impurities of the people of the lands, their abominations filled it from, from end to end with their uncleanliness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon you, us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? And intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is our third point, and I, I believe Ezra is actually looking forward. We've talked about this. He's looking forward to Christ. He's looking forward to those who can stand in the presence of God. He's looking forward to those who are transformed with the new heart that the prophets talked about. He's looking forward to those who are given the spirit of the living God to, to transform their whole being and their whole life to live in accordance with God's word. This is point number three. The spirit of God is what is needed for life change. It's truly the spirit of the living God. God is that which transforms. It's almost as if Ezra is throwing his hands up. I don't know what to do. I don't know what else I can do. At the end of Nehemiah, at the end of Nehemiah, he's doing a similar thing. He goes back and finds that people have sons and daughters that don't even speak. Hebrew, this is 14 years later after this. They have, they have a mini revival here in, in chapter 10. And 14 years later, the same thing is happening. Except the people are having sons and daughters now that don't even speak Hebrew. Because they've married foreign women. As a result, they know nothing about God and His Word. They can't even read His Word. They can't understand it. They know nothing about the God of heaven. Nothing about creation. They don't even speak the language. You see, the people need the spirit of the living God inside of them to overcome the power of sin, to live a life worthy of the calling, to proclaim the steadfast love of the Lord to the ends of the earth. It's his church. He needs the church. We need the church, the people of the living God who are filled with the Holy Spirit. To be the hands and feet of Christ. We need Christ to come to bring the spirit of the living God. God will not come to fill the temple that Zerubbabel built. No, he will come to dwell among men. And he will cleanse the people. By his death on the cross. So that he can come and dwell in them. It may be the time in your life that you need Christ to come and cleanse his temple. That is you, the people of God. Maybe you have desecrated the place where God dwells with your sin. And you now want the spirit of the living God to come and live and take up residence in your life. You want to be led by the spirit, not by the flesh. You're like Ezra, knowing you have fallen short, you need repentance. You're in need of a fresh wind, a fresh fire in your soul. And just like Ezra did, your reliance upon the steadfast love of God 
your reliance upon his grace to bring his favor and his blessing back into your life. And just like Ezra did, I'm asking you to cry out to the God who died so that you may live. Cry out to the God who preserved a remnant so that his name may go to the ends of the earth. Do away with the filthy idols that you have set upon your heart and on your altar and clean it. Ask the God of heaven to cleanse you, to make you holy. And if you have any sin entangling, you throw it off. Let your gaze be fully fixed upon Christ. Throw out any obstacles to your view. He can and he wants to lead you. Will you allow him to do that? Or will you continue in a pattern of going in and out of sin, being tossed to and fro by the waves of this world. You see, the spider seems to be dead. Don't give it a chance to let its fangs sink into your flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the heart of Ezra and the heart of those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may deliver them in due time. We ask, Father, right now that you would examine our hearts, that you would allow us the ability to have a heart for you. to have a heart that seeks the things that you seek after. And we know that we can only receive that by relying upon the steadfast love of God, relying upon the grace of God, placing our faith and trust in the cross of Christ and being led by the Holy Spirit of God. Help us to not quench the Spirit in our life. Help us to see truth in lies. Help us to love the things that you love, to hate the things that you hate, that we may be your church, the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth for your glory and your kingdom. And one day, Father, may we stand in your throne worshiping you, declaring that our salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who was slain.